Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Baresson. And today we have a special guest. We have Dr. Elizabeth Pinsky, who is Associate Director of the Consultation Service uh, to the Department of Pediatrics. And, and what that means is, is that what, what Elizabeth does is she consults to uh, medically ill patients in pediatrics uh, and, and in, in the Mass General Hospital for Children. She is not just a child psychiatrist, but she's also a practicing pediatrician. So she's a switch hitter. So welcome, Elizabeth. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Dean. And, and so um, as we typically start, uh, what, what's, what's been going on in your life recently? How you been? Um, <laughs> so what's been going on recently <laughs> in my life is uh, coronavirus and social isolation. So I uh, live outside of Boston. I have two pretty little kids. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And so I've gone from being a full-time pediatrician and child psychiatrist uh, to also providing full-time uh, child care to my two kids. And um, I would say that they are definitely testing my chops as a child psychiatrist. Um, and, you know, everybody's struggling getting used to this new normal. Um, and so we're having some fun along the way. It's been nice to have some extra time with my kids. Um, and there's definitely been a lot of um, challenges, a lot of learning for everybody. How do they like being home with you or how you're being home with them? I think that there's upsides and there's downsides. I will say that the uh, the Wednesday night that our school system canceled school the next day, my seven-year-old was psyched. It was like a snow day. Like, <laughs> yes, no school. Um, and that lasted for a while. It's been nice to have slower mornings. It's been nice to kind of learn about things we want to learn about and at our own pace. Um, but we we all really, really miss friends and family. Um, and, um, you know, we're having fun and I think we're a little bit, uh, like a lot of families, I think we're a little bit sick of each other at this point. We're ready to, uh, ready to expand our circle again. Um, but we, you know, we've been talking to our kids about it as, um, as being heroes and that a lot of the kind of sacrifices that we're making right now in terms of not seeing friends and staying inside and not going to places that we want to go is so that, uh, we can be superheroes and save people and keep other people healthy. And so um, we're trying to focus on that and on feeling grateful for, you know, having a safe and cozy home and things to do and plenty of Legos um, and for everybody being healthy, not good. Uh, well, so I... <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, same, except I don't have any kids at home. I have uh, a dog and a cat. My dog's recovering from lymphoma. So I've been kind of like, uh, he's been, he's been great. He's doing great. Uh, but it is like taking care of a little kid. Um, he likes having me around, uh, I think. And, um, uh, and the cat, we also, um, are expecting our sixth grandchild. Wow. So yeah, number, but in two weeks, which is causing a little bit of stress because, you know, in this, uh, COVID era, the way they work it in Mass General, which is kind of great, is you know the the delivery floors are separate from uh, the COVID patients uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, they wait until uh, women go in just they're having contractions and they're just going to labor, then they rush them in, and then they deliver the babies and get them out fast. So um, mm -hmm. uh, my wife will be going down there a bit early 
to uh, watch the two and a half year old uh, grandchild while mom is uh, having the new baby. And that's kind of exciting. Uh, it's nerve, it's nerve wracking, but it's exciting. Yeah, nerve wracking to have a new baby sort of in normal times. Um, and pretty crazy to have this whole extra element in there. Yeah. So, so one thing I, 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 I know a lot about you and I've, <laughs> I've known you for a long time, but one of the things that uh, I wanted to talk with you about today is, is one of your great passions besides your children and, and being a pediatrician and a child psychiatrist. And that is about climate change. And um, it's something that's on a lot of our minds. And, and, and I think it comes up right now in COVID because, you know, a lot of people have uh, expressed some interest uh, or concern that all of these new viral strains, you know, whether it's SARS, MERS, H1N1, swine flu, now COVID, uh, may be um, a product of changes in the environment. You know, do you have any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, um, so, my, so my kids are, are four and seven, right? And when I was pregnant with my first, I have always cared a lot about climate change, but when I was pregnant with my first, so about eight, eight years ago now, I, was, I became really, really anxious about climate change. Um, and just about like, you know, I'm bringing a baby into this world and what does their future look like and sort of all this. And I ran into a, an old mentor of mine um a guy who I had trained with I don't actually know but probably at least 25 years older than me and I was talking to him and it somehow came up I think I just read something I said like I'm finding myself really anxious about this I'm like thinking about a lot and it's like interrupting my sleep and stuff um and he was like every generation's got their thing we had the Cuban Missile Crisis we had like you know, Vietnam, like, you think we weren't worried about that? Like, everybody's got their thing. And like, like, got kind of scoffed. And I had this like, burning rage. I was so angry. And it was a sense of like, hopelessness. Like, if this guy who I love and respect and sort of like raised me from a baby doctor can't like, hear this, um, then we're really in trouble. Do you know who it was? Uh, I have some ideas, but you tell me. <laughs> it was you. <laughs> it was you. And and then when I decided my kids got a little bigger and I sort of grew into myself professionally and I was like, you know what? Like I'm not, there's not a lot academically that I'm really, really passionate about. Um, I think climate is going to be my thing. And I sort of started to like dive into the literature and figure out what I was going to write, sort of what kind of papers I was going to do. And there was only one really, really, really good paper on sort of like this problem specific to psychiatry. And do you know who wrote it? You. Yeah. <laughs> you. And I don't, I just, I, I so the, and then he asked me to do this. Um, and I just, it is really, I don't know how much of that was an evolution for you. And I don't know how much of that was about like just, you know, I was misinterpreting it at the time because I was pregnant and emotional and whatever, and you were probably actually very sympathetic. Um, but I don't think I've ever told you that story. No, you <laughs> haven't. I have. <laughs> um, I'm passionate about climate change, as you know, and it's interesting you say that you say passionate about climate in addition to my passion about my kids and pediatric medicine and child psychiatry. To me, those are really all one thing. Yeah. Um, climate change is so intertwined with my own kids' future and with child health in general. I always say climate change is really a child health emergency. That's what it is. Um, to me, they're all one thing. And so I, 
I absolutely, I love anything that gets people interested in climate change and being willing to talk about climate change. I think that's probably one of the most important things that individuals can do is just talk about it. That said, do we know that climate change is responsible for COVID or H1N1 or SARS or any of that? We, we don't, and we'll probably never know. We don't need to know that climate change is responsible for COVID to know that climate change is causing a lot of changes in infectious disease. So spread of Lyme disease, malaria, Zika, diarrheal illness, there's all kinds of infectious diseases that impact kids most of all um, that we know are related to climate change in terms of insects and bugs being able to live and thrive places they couldn't in the past because they're warmer. Um, and also in terms of just kind of degradation of the environment and human beings coming into contact with animals that they wouldn't have in the past. So we don't need COVID to give us a reason to link human health and infectious disease and climate change um, because that's theoretical and there's a lot of facts that we have about the ways that um, climate change and infectious diseases are linked. You know, that said, I don't, to me, that's kind of, um, almost like the, the least important way that climate change and COVID are related. I think that there's a ton of lessons that, you know, as a human species, we can take from the pandemic and apply to the climate crisis. Yeah. You know, I think more than anything, just realizing that um, science is really important. And when scientists tell us to be worried and to be mindful, uh, we should listen to them. <laughs> that's a that's a big lesson. But also, kind of on a bigger, you know, almost almost to me on a sacred level, more of like a um, a philosophical level, realizing that human beings are really interconnected and national boundaries and sort of political stuff. Um, at the end of the day, we're all really interconnected and the decisions that get made on one side of the world impact directly lives on the other side of the world. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's probably one of the most important lessons. And, you know, it occurs to me that um, uh, to make the analogy between the COVID situation and climate change in general is that what we do as individuals um, affects society. So mm -hmm. when we're told, you know, wear a mask, um, use physical distancing, uh, wash your hands, um, not just to take care of yourself, but to take care of other people. So one of the other things that I hear from, from a lot of my uh, patients and kids that are friends is that they, are, they speak of climate change, not just in terms of, you know, their, their future on this planet, but how we're all going to be taking care of each other now and into the future. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of analogies there too. So in both situations, sometimes there's this kind of kind of silly almost argument between are we going to take individual action? So in the case of COVID, you know, wearing a mask, washing our hands, all of that stuff. In the case of climate, maybe driving less, eating less meat, making decisions about our own, you know, homes, electricity, whatever it is. Are we going to take individual action or are we going to take big action? Are we going to take political action as governments and stuff? In the case of um, COVID, 
what, you know, are rules and regulations going to go into place? What are we going to do about getting a vaccine? All that stuff. Um, and the answer to that question, is it one or is the other for climate is the answer is yes, both. Yeah. <laughs> They're both really important. Yeah. Um, and that sometimes there's sort of a false, um, a false choice that's given us between the things we're going to do as individuals or the things that we're going to mm -hmm. do as governments. We are the government. We are the people and government is the decisions that we make together. Um, one other thing about climate that's become clear through the COVID pandemic, um, carbon emissions have fallen during all of this because of the individual changes that we've all made. So we're driving less, we're consuming less stuff, we're flying less. Emissions haven't fallen all that much. So like, what does that tell us? If emissions have fallen sort of somewhere between maybe four and 8% based on our individual choices. What that tells us is that this isn't about just what any of us do as individuals. And that some of this stuff we get fed about, you know, change your light bulbs, don't eat a hamburger, sort of whatever it is, to me is a little bit of a, um, it's a little bit of a bait and switch. The vast majority of the carbon emissions are baked into this system that we live in. And while individual choices are important, if individual choices were really going to change what's happening, emissions would have fallen much more <laughs> during COVID. The fact of the matter is that this is about like our infrastructure. Yeah. and our systems and the choices that our governments are making. Um, and we all need to be applying pressures yeah. there as well, not just changing, you know, what our own families are eating and doing, although that is important too. In my yeah, opinion. and so, so let me get to that about what our own families are doing, because uh, yeah. since we're talking, you know, on this show mostly to parents um, yep. and, and, and thinking about what our kids are experiencing, um, most kids that I know are not thinking about unless they're older adolescents or college, like college students that do think about political change for the, from the standpoint of kids and daily life, you know, um, what are they worried about and what should we be worried about as parents and how should we be raising our children to increase awareness and consciousness about, uh, about climate change so that we can actually, um, help them, uh, develop into adults who might be a part of the greater political changes that you're talking about. Well, when your kids are young, what can we be doing as parents to help them understand what's going on or to help alleviate their anxieties? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I would say is, um, is talking to them about it in a developmentally appropriate way. So I think that most, I think you're right. Most, it's not just, um, young adults or older teenagers who are aware of climate change and worried about it, the school strikes have taught us that high school students, so, you know, kids who are sort of 13, 14 on up are really worried about it. And um, there isn't a ton of data in the medical literature about this, but there's a fair amount of data just from polling that would support that, that would say that adolescents, about at least 70% of them are really pretty anxious about climate change. So I would say it's not, I don't think it's older adolescents. I think it's younger adolescents. But your question is about really littler kids. Well, but kids about, honestly might. It's about both, really. I mean, I, I think, yeah. I think you know, all kids are affected one way or another. I mean, even younger kids, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, know something about it. They're, you know, they may be worried about hurricanes or 
mm-hmm. forest fires or things like that. But but I think there's and a, I think yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Younger kids oftentimes are worried about animals. So I think for a yeah. lot of little kids, it's about sort of nature and animals and the polar bears and the sea turtles and sort of those things that they see. And for really little kids, I think um, they are hearing about it. And it's, you know, we talk about this a lot in my work on the consult service with medically ill kids. And we talk about it a lot in kids who've experienced trauma. Um, if you can talk about it, um, if you can make it talk aboutable, then you can worry less. <laughs> so making sure that you are the one who's talking to your kids about this stuff in a way that they can digest based on their age. So I would encourage people as soon as kids sort of start asking questions about the environment, you know, mama, I heard something about, you know, the earth's getting too hot, whatever it is when it comes up, when a kid is maybe, you know, kindergarten, first grade, whatever it is, um, talking to them about it in an age appropriate way and following that immediately with ways that they can take action. So um, for a very little kid, for a you know toddler or preschooler, I still think that there's things that you can do in terms of exposing them to the natural world, getting them out in nature, making sure that nature is something that's important to them. Um, and then once kids are in early elementary school, talking to them about what climate change is, a really, really basic explanation of the science. You don't need to be a climate scientist to do that. And then talking about what you can be doing as a family to make a difference. Yeah, I like your focus on doing because, you know, it's one thing for kids, whether they're young or they're adolescents, to kind of have a knowledge base. Uh, and then, of course, many of them will worry. They'll be anxious. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll see, like the teenagers will see themselves in kind of a Mad Max movie, you know, in a just in a in a barren desert driving through water in apocalyptic ways right right and but 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 that's the that's the movies uh it may be the future but 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 i love your i love what you're saying is that 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 taking action is helpful so it's one thing Mm -hmm. for them to know about it and worry about it if they can feel empowered to do something for kids of all ages doesn't that make a difference Mm -hmm. yeah so For little kids, I think it makes sense to have something of a script. So you're saying something along the lines of, um, you know, we burn a lot of fossil fuels, which are things like oil and gas to make electricity and to heat our homes and to do the things we need. Um, Burning those fuels creates greenhouse gases, which wrap around the planet and can warm it up like a blanket, causing a lot of problems for animals and for people. And it's a big problem, but there's a lot of people who are working on finding solutions to that problem. And there's a lot of things that we can do as a family to make a difference. And then that's followed up with, okay, so what can we do as a family to make a difference? I can give some examples of things that my family does. So we talk a lot about food waste. Food waste is a big contributor to um, greenhouse gases. We um, make an effort to avoid food waste, not just because it's sort of the right thing to do and waste is a problem, but because it's good for the earth. Um, We also have a worm composter in our basement. So feeding the worms our scraps is one thing we do. Um, We make an effort to try to eat fewer animal products. My kids know which meals we have that they like that are better for the earth because they're plant-based as opposed to being animal-based. And then we have things that we do. So anytime that we go on a walk in the woods or on the beach, we always make sure that we bring a bag with us so that we can be picking up plastic as we go um, and then put it in a trash can at the end of our walk. 
Um, for older kids, there's a lot of carbon footprint calculators online that you could certainly do with a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid to kind of look at what are the biggest contributors in our house and are there things that we could be doing differently? Because um, certainly there's a lot to be anxious about with climate change. Um, anxiety with no place to go is a lot harder than anxiety that's channeled towards action. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't want to say that that's the cure for the anxiety about climate change. We should be nervous about this. Um, it's real. It's anxiety provoking. If we were not anxious, we wouldn't be acting as much. Um, but having sort of healthy anxiety that's driving us to do stuff makes sense. Um, and so I think especially for, for younger kids, making sure that that's where you're channeling it um, is important. You know, we also know that that's, I mean, that's what kids that age want to do, right? Yeah. Seven, eight, nine-year-olds, they yeah. want to be good at stuff. They want to get it and, you know, master it, know how to do. Um, and so if they feel like they're, you know, superheroes for the earth, uh, great. Yeah, and what about teenagers? Um, so what about teenagers? <laughs> <laughs> well, on the on the, on the on the one teenagers, you know, I mean, they're they're kind of a mixed bag. So on the one hand, they say, "Why bother? Nothing really matters." That's the dystopian uh, side of the teenager. But then there are other mm-hmm. other other parts of being a, a teen, feeling wanting to feel empowered, wanting to be independent and autonomous, wanting to make a difference. Kind of like the kids at Parkland, you know, who took political activism you know, to a very important uh, place. Um, and so what, what, do you, what would you encourage uh, our parents listening to kind of have, you know, talk with their teens about, about empowering them? So, you know, it's interesting. There's sort of, there's a, so you're talking about looking at this two ways. There's the dystopian, who cares, we're all doing, and then there's the sort of rebellious, I'm going to take charge. And I don't, um, I think that by and large, grownups don't need to talk to their teenagers about this stuff or sort of, I think that they kind of need to shut up and listen because it really has been young people and particularly teenagers who have managed to bring this to the forefront and actually sort of um, introduced an element of hope into this problem. Um, really for the first time ever. So it really has been the climate strikes and young people stopping and saying, this is not about some distant future. This is not about the next generation. This is about us and our lives and them really taking a stand um, that has made a difference. So what I would say to parents is if you have a teen activist in your home already, then figure out how you can support them. Yeah. And make sure that they're getting enough sleep and not completely abandoning their work um, and that they have the things they need and that they're taken seriously. Not just that you're making them feel taken seriously, but that they're actually taken seriously. Yeah, which, um, which, and it, mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say what's so cool about, about what you're saying is, is that um, number one, they're taking they're in the driver's seat. This is our world. But they're also sticking it to us, saying like, "Look what you get. Look, look, look at the legacy that your generation has left for us, and that's not that's not good." Um, so, yeah. so that they can both take us on and empower themselves and get in the driver's seat all at the same time. Yeah, 
I don't think that your generation and folks a little bit younger than you were going to take this seriously until their kids made them. Kids are really, really powerful here, not just because they're the ones who are going to be living with it, because they are not going to give you guys a break. Um, and, you know, so what should we do? We should respect that and get out of the way and do what we need to do to really support those kids. Um, in terms of thinking about it from a mental health angle, again, there's not a lot in the medical literature, but polling data would suggest that for kids who are really, really suffering with anxiety from climate change, what we you know, sometimes get called eco-anxiety or climate grief, it is activism that helps them feel better. And some of that is that same thing we're talking about with little kids, where action just helps with that feeling of anxiety and hopelessness. And some of it is about them finding a community um, of peers who they can share their worry with um, and really find an identity through this. Um, and my goodness, if your identity is that you are a climate activist at age 16, um, there's a lot of, <laughs> I'll take that over a lot of things, like a lot of things <laughs> that yeah. kids can choose to identify with at age 16. That's great. Now, uh, just, just taking off on that. So what's our obligation as parents, not just to listen, but what, what do we need to do as role models to show them? Because, you know, if, if we're going to, if we're going to walk the walk, we've got to be doing things ourselves to show them that, that we are responding. Um, hopefully, uh, what can, what can parents do as respondents to their teenagers uh, and as role models? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a lot of it's the stuff we already talked about, right? In terms of being willing to make changes in your own life that are consistent with taking them seriously. So if the kids are right, that like their future is threatened, their ability to have kids of their own, um, their ability to sort of, you know, live into you know, adulthood and old age on a healthy world, if all of that is threatened, um, then it is an emergency and we should be behaving like it is one. Um, So, you know, what should we be doing? We should be making changes in our own lives. We should be thinking about the houses we live in and the cars we drive and the foods we eat and the vacations we take. And more than anything else, we should be, um, we should be voting (laughs) and demanding sort of leadership from our political leaders um, and corporations and sort of all of that. Um, but also we should be talking about it. So I think that there is this, there's this like myth out there that climate change is um, like a hot button or political topic or that somehow it like divides America. Um, and again, we have, we have data on this and the vast majority of people are worried about climate change, believe that it's real, believe that it's caused by human activity and want to do something about it. Like it is not a divisive issue. Um, there's a small proportion of people who really don't want to hear the evidence and don't want to be convinced and like, God bless them, you know, so be it. But the vast majority of people care about this and are willing to talk about it. Um, the number of people who care about it and are worried about it is a lot bigger than the number of people who talk about it on a daily basis or even a weekly basis. Yeah. Um, so if you look at that data, you know, 80, 90% of people are at least willing to think about it and are worried about it. And something like 30 or 40% of people actually talk about it regularly. 
So what can we do about it? Make changes in your own life. Vote. Make it clear to your leaders that you care about it and talk about it. Talk about it with your kids. Talk about it with your coworkers. Talk about it at church or temple. Um, it, it should be part of the conversation. And and then as as uh, as physicians, we have an important role too. Um, mm-hmm. We're supposedly the authorities on health and well-being, um, and um, uh, from my standpoint, there's been far too little that we've done <laughs> as, yep. as as doctors and healthcare professionals to actually be um, shouting out how big of an emergency this is, and if we really do care about prevention, as the Clay Center certainly does, um, we need to have a voice. Yeah. So I know that we're, you know, we're talking to parents right now, not necessarily to healthcare providers, but there are lots of organizations out there that um, physicians can be becoming active in. Um, climate change is a health emergency. Yeah. Most, most of all a child's health emergency, but if you're a doctor or a nurse, um, or a social worker, or a paramedic, or any kind of health professional who's not thinking about climate change, you're missing a big piece of your um, yeah. of health for the people. You and, work and, and 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 I don't just mean that we're talking uh, for healthcare providers to be doing something on our own, which we which we should, but we all have patients, and we all yeah. see patients, and 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 why shouldn't why shouldn't uh, climate change and the various uh, things that that promote climate change be a part of our um of our uh, medical interviews or medical you know when we see patients i mean it it should be something that comes up I mean, don't you well, think so how do you do that so how do you do that how do you bring climate change into the individual patient encounter well i i i i you know think when i ask about nutrition and about diet when I ask about lifestyle, when I ask about exercise, I ask about bike riding and what, what you're so doing. So let's do it because I think it's tricky. So let's let's pretend a little bit. How do you do that? Oh, well, just as I ask about media use and digital media, uh, in my, quote, social history, I ask mm-hmm. about um, uh, what kind of foods do you eat? Uh, what kind of recycling do you do? Um, uh, do you uh, instruct your kids about, about diet? I ask about exercise and who exercises in the family. I ask about what kind of car do you drive, and and how. And not why do just, you want? To, why do you want to know what kind of car I drive? Because, sure I, because I think my kid has ADHD. Oh well, number one, I want to be sure the kids. I, I segue in. I weave it in. I ask about seatbelts. I ask nice. about about car seats, and then I ask nice. about. I ask about. Uh, what what size vehicle they have <laughs> and what do they use for like local runs? Like for example, do you use the car? Do you really? Yeah. Yep. Well, see, I, I, Do you introduce that in any way? Because I think the vast majority of, of families who I work with, it's in the middle of my interview where I'm assessing for anxiety or depression or whatever it is. If I said, what make and model is your vehicle and how many MPGs do you get? They would think I was crazy. Well, but you see, since I, I only do therapy whether I use medications or not. So I see people, parents and kids every single week. Um, and that way I could know a lot about their lives. Um, and, I, and I usually ask, I'm, for example, I ask who sleeps in what bedroom? Tell me the layout of your house. Now, how many people ask about that? I, I want to know, do they have a single, do they have a studio apartment where they have like two families living in the, in like, you know, some, some folks do, or do they, does everybody have their own bedroom? 
Uh, I ask about privacy. I, I don't ask about the layout of the house, but I ask kids if they have enough privacy. Yeah. Well, I've been asking more and more about that. The more I've kind of been involved with, you know, kind of COVID and uh, um, uh, sharing spaces and yeah, it's more, it's mostly about privacy, but, but I do ask about the more, the more I, I find when I'm talking with people about the details of their lives, mm-hmm. the more I get information about how they're thinking, how they're feeling, how they're understanding life and and I, I don't ask how you know like necessarily the model of their car, but I ask <laughs> I, I ask about the use of their car. So, for example, mm-hmm. if you if you if if you live in a little town and you can walk to the market, do you do you take yep. a walk and you go shopping with your kids and teach them about nutrition, or do you drive and pick things up? You know, I ask about making food as opposed to takeout mm-hmm. because making food often means that they have control of their ingredients and they're teaching their kids about These that. are all good <laughs> questions. And I would not I would not expect any less from you, Gene. I, I have I the trained t- under you and knowing that you really, really understand your families and the kids that you work with. I'm gonna challenge you because I don't think that those those questions get at climate and environmental impact and all of that. But if if families don't understand why you're asking, I don't think you've really brought climate into the encounter. Yeah, I, I ask those questions because I, I see, I spend a lot of time with my patients. If I know those, if I know the more data I have, and this again is over time, this is not an initial interview. If I'm going to be evaluating a kid for a panic attacks, I don't necessarily ask about where they're sleeping. I might if they have separation anxiety, but um, I make it pertinent to the to the to the interview. But the more I know about their life in detail, the more I'll be able to help them respond to issues when these things do come up. So, for example, if I know how often they um, recycle, if I often know how they you know whether they garden, if I know whether or not they have, and even if they're in the city, if they have a housetop garden. Um, it gives me more uh, data to kind of understand how they're living. Um, I don't, I don't, it's not a mission. In other words, climate change is only one area that I will focus on. I focus on, as I said, digital media. I focus on social interactions. I focus on friends. I focus on extended family. Um, I focus on living space. So um, it's not geared towards climate change, but it's data. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I think it is trickier to bring climate change into the encounter in psychiatry than it is in pediatrics or internal medicine. I do with um adolescents try to open the door to a discussion about it when I'm starting to meet the kid in terms of talking about, you know, some kids have concerns about the future or worries about what things are going to look like is that something you struggle with sort of actively opening the door for kids to talk about it if they want to um as opposed to you know they say the world's going to end and you're doomed are you worried about it (laughs) i would not do um i do think that it is easier because there are so many links between climate change and asthma, infectious disease, obesity, we even know that folks who live in polluted environments are dying from COVID more often, right? So there's a direct link between environment and COVID there again. I also think that just um, 
having a visual prompt can be really important. So I have some climate changes health pins that I just have, you know, that are sort of visible in my office and on my work bag, sort of the same way that people will sometimes have a visual prompt to let kids know that it's a safe space for LGBTQ or gender diverse patients or sort of things like that. So you don't need to say it overtly, um, but just making it clear that you are a person with whom it's safe to talk about things like that. I think that that can apply with climate as well. Um, and if every doctor had a climate changes health pin in their room, you could bet that there would be some folks who would start to ask about it and want more information. Yeah, I think you raise a really important point because like many of the things that I was just mentioning uh, that I bring up in, in the course of, of my meetings with, with uh, kids and, and families uh, comes from them. It starts from them. It's like, right. you know, so it, it, I don't necessarily initiate what vehicle they drive, but if the kid says, you know, damn it, I can't have my own car. I say, excuse me? <laughs> How old are you? 17. I didn't get my own car until I was like 30. <laughs> I was sharing car. I mean, why do you need a car? And then you can easily segue into issues of autonomy on the one hand and independence. And you can also segue into issues of fossil fuel and how many cars does you and your, do you and your family need and how do you understand this? So it becomes a part of a more com complex and a deeper conversation. So a lot mm -hmm. of the stuff that I'm, I'm asking about actually comes up uh, organically uh, in the course of just discussions. That's a more honest answer, Gene. <laughs> it's not, it, I can tell you, di <laughs> dig digital media is a part of my standard, media literacy is a that part of my I standard believe, history. That I believe, I, but, but, I, but, I mean, I, I'm more passionate about climate than any other and, and, exercise and, and, I just I know. And, and, I can't figure out how to work it into my initial assessment. Are you recycling? But don't you ask about diet and exercise and the foods that, that people eat? That is not the same thing because it is. this is what makes climate so challenging, right? What you eat and whether you have privacy and who's in your home and what kind of exercise you're getting, that influences the kid who's in the chair in front of me. And so it belongs in that patient encounter. I firmly believe that climate change is going to actively impact the trajectory of that kid's life, mm -hmm. like actively. But it is very hard to bring it into that encounter because it's bigger, right? Um, and so you sort of, you can open the door to it um, and certainly, you know, again, I think it is easier in, in pediatrics and in internal medicine. Um, but if it's not what's active and what's going on for that kid right then, it's more about me than them to bring it into that encounter. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, so I, I certainly don't want to impose my own agenda uh, in, the, in, in the interview. Careful, though, careful, because it's not an agenda. It's just a, it's a fact. Um, well, but or, if it's not if it's not what's hot, then right. Well, if it's so not well, you've you've got to go to where where the patient is at. You've got to you've got to what's important and what's operative in their lives right now is what we have to be focusing on. Right, and, and I do not, think our our responsibility in the room with the individual kid or family is different from our responsibility as physicians in society. And our responsibilities, physicians, and societies to be talking about this all the time. 
our responsibility with a given family is to, you know, be hearing what, what's important to them. Mm-hmm. One, one, of the, one of the cool things about that is that, is that uh, in, my, in my old age, as it were, <laughs> uh, I, and being a deputy editor of academic psychiatry, we decided a few years ago to write commentaries. And most of them are social commentaries. And so we've written about climate change. We've written about sex trafficking. We've written about, you know, the kinds of things that you don't typically read about in psychiatry. Um, And um, this was one of them. The things that we don't write about enough in psychiatry often are kind of like the most important things, huh? Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why we started about these commentaries, because we realized that, uh, we're missing the boat. And like you said at the very beginning, everything is interconnected. I mean, you know, everything that's psychiatric is also medical, is also sociological, is also, uh, you know, physiological. I mean, it's all the the mind-body, you know, environment, trichotomy, whatever word that is, uh, is a misnomer. We're all interconnected. The answer to is it this or that is almost always yes. Yes, that's right. It's kind of like my one of my mentors, Leon Eisenberg, said, um, uh, when you're looking at, I'll, I'll misquote him, but uh, he said, to say how much is nature and how much is nurture is to say how much of the area of a rectangle is the length and how much is the width. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they're all, they're all related. So we have to wind up. Um, thank you for being here. And uh, for those listening, if, you're, uh, if you have any thoughts, comments, concerns, want to make some uh, suggestions about how we uh, can help parents and families um, in raising children who are sensitive to climate change, please do send us a word, uh, email, tweet us, uh, let us know, and uh, we'll try to answer your questions. Thanks for listening. I'm Gene Bereson. I'm Elizabeth Kinski. So anyway, you thank you very much. And for Thanks the for having me. I hope uh, this is up to snuff. Oh, are you kidding? So, so, so um, my screen's frozen. I can see there myself. There you are. No, you're back. So um, uh, I just, for the audience. Um, Someone in my house is probably streaming, I don't know, Paw Patrol or something. <laughs>